I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. I'm a medical writer and patient educator who lives with a J-pouch due to ulcerative colitis. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 144. Inflammatory bowel disease can affect anyone of any ethnicity. However, that fact is still not understood by the general public, but also by some healthcare providers. My guest is Dr. Oriana Damas. She is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. She is also the director of translational studies for the Crohn's and Colitis Center at the University of Miami. Dr. Damas has been studying how environment and genetics play a role in the development of IBD. She has especially looked at how IBD is affecting immigrants to the United States from Latin America. Her research also includes how diet may affect the development and the progression of IBD. She explains why research into diet is so difficult, what she's learned from her research so far, and how the results of her work are affecting how we think about IBD for everyone who is touched by these diseases. Dr. Damas, thank you so much for coming on about IBD. Thank you for having me here. Oh, of course. I mean, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and to learn some more about your research. Uh, but first, let's start off. I wonder if you would give a brief introduction so our listeners can hear about uh, where you're coming from. Yes, um, I'm an associate professor at the University of Miami. I'm a gastroenterologist, and I'm also a physician scientist with a focus on inflammatory bowel disease, especially as it relates to understanding what are dietary and lifestyle factors impacting um, the life of IBD patients. Um, and again, I'm very excited to be here today. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, so our topic is how IBD affects the Hispanic community and also is affecting immigrants to the United States who are coming from Latin America. And so first off, I just wonder uh, what is behind your interest in studying this area of IBD? Well, Amber, I have to say that it started almost as a result of my training. I noticed um, when I was uh, even as, as young as a medical student that diseases in general uh, seem to afflict Hispanic patients um, either more severely or in a different way when I was rotating through the hospital. And what do I mean by that? I noticed that uh, patients often were uh, either underdiagnosed or they went a long time without getting the appropriate treatment. And then when I went into GI um, as my specialty and, and more were focused on inflammatory bowel disease, I noticed that patients who had IBD who were of Hispanic background um, really didn't know much about their disease. This is a inflammatory bowel disease does not is not typically discussed in a dinner table among patients of Hispanic background. This is not something that I'm, I'm Latino as well. And this is not something that we know about, right? And that your mom or your grandma or, you know, it's not something that we have a family history of typically. And so mm. it's something that we're not very familiar with um, as a community. And so this is something that I observed in the patients that I was treating back then as a medical resident and as a fellow. And so that really inspired me to dig a little bit deeper and understand what were factors that were relevant in this community and what were factors that could be contributing to the development of disease. And so that really inspired the rest of my work. And, and from there on forward, it really has been 
the root of, of my research, but then, uh, you know, I've evolved it to look at dietary and environmental factors, but all primarily coming from that root source, which came from observing that Hispanic patients were developing IBD and that they really had a poor understanding in general of, of what it meant. And so I've dedicated a, a portion of my work to really trying to um, help patients understand that and, and kind of describe the disease in the Hispanic community. Mm-hmm. So digging a little bit more into that, you were seeing it, but how common is IBD in the Hispanic community and in the immigrant community? And like, what are the trends that you're noticing there? Yeah, well, the truth is that it's not as prevalent as it is in non-Hispanic whites. But why that is? Well, it's just a matter of time. Mm. Um, It's actually, there's many epidemiologic studies now. So these studies that look at how um, the incidence and prevalence of a disease in a in a population. So that's what we describe as epidemiologic studies. And and what we find in these studies throughout Latin America is that this disease is in fact increasing in its incidence. So meaning a new disease and in its prevalence in people that just overall live with the disease for for long periods of time. And so what we see in the United States is something similar where the prevalence for um, non-Hispanic whites, so your your Caucasian Americans, so to speak, um, will have a much higher prevalence described in the literature um, when we compare them to other minorities. But we do see that the prevalence among Hispanics and Latinos in the United States is increasing um, and although it's not as high a prevalence as it is in the non-Hispanic white communities, I think it's only a matter of a few decades before we reach that um, similar high prevalence. And so it becomes altogether very important to prepare our community of, of Hispanic Latinos um, to understand what this disease is, to be prepared for it. And, and the same goes for our Latin American countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have already described that you were seeing maybe some of the results of healthcare disparities in the Hispanic community and the patients that you were treating. But what is causing that? What What are the barriers that are happening in the uh, Latin American community in the United States? And what might contribute to these problems that you were seeing? That's a great question. And the truth is we don't know exactly um what contributes to IBD specifically. And I think Mm -hmm. this is an area that we definitely need to dive into as researchers and as policymakers. But if we extrapolate from the data in the cardiovascular literature and endocrine who have looked at Hispanic communities who have a chronic disease in the United States, um, we can identify that there are several barriers in existence that can lead to underdiagnosis and can lead to disparities in the delivery of care for our patients. So I think it's probably the same reason that uh, is occurring in our IBD community, but I can't tell you exactly if there's specific IBD-related causes. And, and what mm-hmm. those are on a, on a broader level um, are several factors. One is immigrant communities may have less access to care. For for example, they may be a little bit more hesitant towards seeking care as well. They may also have less flexibility um, in their work and or life in general to be able to seek care in the first place. There's the additional language barrier um, that faces many immigrant communities, um, including the Hispanic Latino community. And so some of these are, are financial policy and uh, really 
um, much larger, broader levels that uh, you know are really out of the hand of, of us as providers. Um, I mean, I think we can obviously get involved as policymakers and and advocates for our patients, but mm-hmm. um, in terms of our patients and helping our patients directly, I think as providers, what we can do for our Hispanic patients is try to f- understand uh, what are perhaps some individual barriers that patients have. If we notice that patients are less accessible or or they're unable to keep up with appointments, for example, not to be so quick to say, oh, you know, this patient just doesn't show up, right? So mm-hmm. understand that there are disparities that very much exist among different minority communities, including the Hispanic Latino communities that may, that may lead to these, to these no-show rates, right? So that's one level. Um, the other factor is to really have a level of awareness as providers and, and as doctors in general that that patients of minority background, including Hispanic Latinos, can have inflammatory bowel disease. And, and mm. I think that's a big, important factor to make because I'll tell you that um, even as far as it wasn't that long ago when I myself was in medical school and I was taught that inflammatory bowel disease primarily occurred in patients that were of, of white and Jewish background. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that detection level as a provider may not, may not be present across the board throughout the United States. And I think we need to raise awareness, even as providers, that this disease can afflict um, other communities as well beyond the non-Hispanic white community. Right, right. So there's some institutional inertia, I think, there that uh, spend decades in the making. And so it's a little bit difficult to undo. And then also I'm wondering about cultural factors. You said already that uh, maybe bowel habits aren't discussed at the dinner table. Is there anything else in the in the Hispanic and Latin American communities that are sort of standing in the way of people getting IBD diagnosed and treated? You know, that's such a great question. And I think it's something that we definitively have to study a little bit more. Mm. Um, There was a qualitative research study that was done. And what that means is basically they had focus groups um, of patients that looked at um, these type of social and cultural factors that influenced uh, talking about IBD and the perceptions of IBD in in an Asian, in a South Asian community. Mm -hmm. And what was found is that um, it it was, you know, talking about bowel movements was something that was not acceptable, that having uh, communication about IBD in general was sort of a stigma um, when, when talking to other relatives because of the factors that were considered to be detrimental to either marriage or um, marriage potential and Mm. all sorts of other stigmas. So Mm -hmm. why do I say this? Because although I don't think that's necessarily the same for the Hispanic Latino community, I do think that we really need to understand what are social factors that influence IBD perception and and medical related behaviors uh, when it comes to IBD in our community. And and we actually have not done that yet. Mm. Um, What I can tell you is that um, speaking as a a Hispanic Latino patient or person myself rather, I'm of Colombian background and, and I was born in Colombia. I can tell you that, um, for example, IBD and my family and, uh, you know, across the broader community of, of what that means, right? Like mm-hmm. us Latinos, we like to have big families and big events. Nobody really knows um, what IBD is. And so as an mm-hmm. IBD physician, I have to 
do my part in educating what what IBD means. And and so um, in my in my network, right, in my social network of of the Latin community, Mm -hmm. people are not familiar with what this disease is in the first place. So I think we have to study what are factors that influence behaviors in patients with IBD of various backgrounds, but we also have to do a big part in educating um, our community in general that this mm-hmm. disease exists. Because if you don't know it exists, then you may not be aware that you're having the symptoms for it, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's a big part of that as well. And I think as the prevalence of IBD increases across Latin America, we have to do our role. And, and this is where educating providers, educating right the physicians and nurses in Latin America about the appropriate workup for this is important, but also g- getting a greater awareness in general or creating a general awareness in our in our Latin American countries is important as well. right. I want to switch gears and talk about your research. You mentioned that you were a physician scientist as well. And in particular, I was interested in this research that was showing that there's a pattern of IBD in people immigrating to the United States. I believe the research was done on those immigrating from Cuba. Could you talk about that research and what it showed? Absolutely. So, we had this neat idea um, to look at our cohort of Cuban patients um, who developed IBD and were coming to our center. And um, it was actually uh, my mentor at the time. She's like, wouldn't this be cool? Or her, her Dr. Maria Abreu. And she's like, wouldn't this be cool to look at this? I'm like, yeah, let me, let me look into this. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is um, I got the data that we had been collecting on age of diagnosis, when did patients develop symptoms, and um, we collect data on when they came to the United States. And so I thought it would be neat and and almost like a natural experiment to only look at Cubans, right? Because Mm -hmm. in a way, at least Cubans on their own are very mixed in general. They're genetically admixed. I I say that word because I I do research in genetics. So I I know what that means. Means It means a little bit of African, a little bit of of European, and and maybe a little bit less a Mary Indian background or or Native American. So um, in any case, so... I did it only in Cubans to really try to at least control a little bit for the genetics, Mm -hmm. right? Um, As much as I could on on a descriptive um, data. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we then looked at, well, what's the relationship between decades of immigration? We know that as part of political reasons, there was different waves of immigration of Cubans to the United States. And so they really did come in in cohorts of of different uh, political milestones. And so when I grouped those in patients into, okay, this was like a 50s group, this was a 70s group, this was an 80 plus group, a 1980 plus group cohort, when they came to the United States, and I looked at the, the relationship between the time that they developed IBD, their symptoms, and the, and the time that they immigrated to the United States, what I found is that uh, patients uh, are developing IBD, um, that 1980 cohort and forward, right? Because this is what I looked at from the more recent decades. 
they're developing IBD within a shorter time period from the from the time that they're coming to the United States when we compared it to the 1960s group and the and the 1970s group. And so what this tells us is that you know either something's changing in Cuba, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that there's some sort of difference in, in environmental exposures over there, um, although it tends to be a lot slower, right, than in any other developing country because of, of the political reasons. Mm. Um, but either something's changing there or when they're coming here, patients are perhaps more rapidly assimilating to the American way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe that's creating the increased risk factor of when they're going to develop IBD. We don't exactly know. Um, mm. And so... And, and I shall premise that with with we haven't really quite discussed this, but a Western style of living is associated with an increased risk of IBD. So mm-hmm. we do see that described across other studies as well, like where immigrants go to countries where there's a higher prevalence of IBD and those immigrants coming from low areas of low prevalence areas of IBD do kind of adopt a similar prevalence of, of the IBD um, that is present in the country that they go to. So um, it's something similar that we did, except that, you know, we compared it across immigration periods and we could see kind of that time to development of IBD um, that is shortening. But I think we need to do more research into why, right? Um, and, and that's part of some of the research that I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think probably... One of the bigger things that is being discussed and looked into is research on diet and IBD. It's kind of been a big thing the past several years. But also that research is apparently not very culturally inclusive when it comes to the Hispanic community. So can you tell me more about the barriers that you're seeing there that you've identified and why they need to be addressed when you're doing this research? Absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, my first area of interest was really understanding why this disease was developing in Hispanic patients. And I did some research in genetics, and I noticed that it's not all in the genetics. A lot of it has to do with the environment. And so then I started looking at environmental factors of which diet has is a huge environmental component, not only for contributing to an increased risk of IBD, but also uh, affecting ongoing inflammation and the quality of life of patients. And so mm-hmm. that really led to my interest and my evolution of interest. And so I'll tell you that over the last couple of years, I've also increasingly become very interested in the role of diet and IBD as a, as a treatment. Uh, obviously, I think at this point, we have to say as adjunctive, I don't think it should be sole treatment. I think mm-hmm. medical therapy is very important and, and should not be replaced. But, mm-hmm. but I do think as adjunctive, it, can, it, it may help patients get into remission and it may help patients stay in remission. And I think we need to do more research on that topic, but we're learning a lot of its promises in the realm as a, as a therapeutic agent on its own. So to get to your question, over the last couple of years, I've noticed that that when I tell my patients, well, you have to do a better diet, or you know, maybe I don't say it like that exactly. I tell them, <laughs> you know, I tell them, well, I say it much nicer. I say, well, you know, stay away from the very processed foods, or mm. don't eat so much red meat. Um, let's try to increase your fiber, fruits, veggies, right? Things that maybe all of us have difficulty with doing, but. I find that when patients ask me for more guidance, besides a nutritionist that I, I am, we're fortunate to have in our center, 
I tell them, well, you know, there's a lot of studies on the Mediterranean diet, but then I pause and then I realize, okay, well, is it realistic to tell someone from Colombia, from Cuba, from mm -hmm. Peru, right? Okay, well, just change your diet entirely, right? Let alone that you're suffering from this disease already. Change your diet, change your patterns. You have your whole family eat a Mediterranean diet, which, by the way, is also more expensive, right? Mm. Um, and it's just not, it is not realistic. And yeah. it, it has to do with also food affordability and also dietary adherence. So we have dietary research is really hard to do. Why? Because um, a lot, it's very difficult to change the dietary patterns of humans, right? So we just want to eat what we want to eat. And, and so, so that's a problem. And so that has really inspired me to look into realistic ways to improve diet in, in, in Hispanic communities. And how can we do that? Well, let's start researching what are they eating? Um, what causes inflammation? And what are the recipes that maybe we can adapt um, mm -hmm. that will be anti-inflammatory, but also feasible and affordable for patients? And so that's something that I, I, I have a career development award in, and I'm currently looking at the dietary patterns of, of Hispanic Latino patients with IBD, and I'm looking at the relationship between what they eat and, uh, and inflammation over time. And so far, what I've discovered is, is really cool because it, it shows that, um, that there's promise in, in a Hispanic diet. Many people think, well, Cuban diet is not healthy. Um, well, it can be. <laughs> so um, I'll tell you that so far I found that some food items like very starchy uh, vegetables, which are high in, in resistant starch, but high in fiber as well, patients that were consuming these type of vegetables that are, are really not known otherwise, uh, if you're not Cuban or Colombian, if you know, if you're from Minnesota, you're not going to know what yuca is. And, um, <laughs> and these vegetables are actually um, associated in, in our study with a lower risk of, of relapse in, in these mm -hmm. patients, in our patients. So, so it shows promise. And so what's the next step after, hopefully I get this published this year and, and, and available to, for everybody to read. Our next step is really to develop this culturally tailored anti-inflammatory diet. And, and I just submitted a grant to make this as a clinical trial, but even before then, we're developing the recipes for that in, in a way that is very mathematical. It's not just, oh, go and eat you know, this recipe that is good for you. We're calculating what's the macro and micronutrient content in these recipes, incorporating these veggies that we found were relevant, um, cultural foods that are relevant, and um, adopting them to create recipes for our patients. That's incredible. I hope I can see some of these recipes when you start getting into, into the weeds with this, because that would be amazing. And I think this is a this is a big part of this is that we can identify the problems, right? Like I think in some cases we know what the problems are, but then we actually have to try to develop some solutions. And your research is exactly kind of right. doing that already. So I'm going to ask you a really big question, though, because you are already deep in this and you're already doing plenty. But what would you like to see other healthcare providers do that they can help address the needs of the Hispanic and the Latin American community who are at risk of IBD or who are already living with IBD? Wow, that's such a good question. Um, well, um, I, <laughs> I, I think I would like to to have more accessibility 
for patients to get education on their disease. And mm-hmm. so I think I think it's not fair to say only for Hispanic and Latinos. I think mm-hmm. really all patients need it broadly. Yeah. Now, what we can do for Hispanic communities in particular and what providers can do is gauge for language barriers and mm-hmm. education level or education awareness of the of IBD in general in those patients um, that are of Hispanic Latino background. Because I'll tell you that most of the time we assume that patients can have the the ability to look this up and and to do kind of some of the researching on their own and but there's barriers to that, right? You have to yeah. be able to navigate the language, um, know that there are support groups available, right? So these are things that are very, in a way, American and Western, um, but things that are not very common in outside of that space. And so, okay. and and so, I think that when a provider is taking care of a patient, I think there has to be some level of awareness that 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 this gap exists, mm-hmm. and some level of uh, referral towards uh, patient support systems, foundation support, and all the other resources that patients need, like nutritionist, psychologist, and that perhaps, you know, if, if providers can have the ability to network with uh, Spanish-speaking psychologists and nutritionists that are familiar, right, with the cultural aspects, not let alone the language, mm-hmm. um, then then it's then it's gonna work. Then it's mm-hmm. gonna work for those patients. Is there anything available already? I know you yourself have conducted some patient education uh, in Spanish. Is there anything else that is created that's out there that people can access? The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation has a webpage in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so that is that is one resource. Mm-hmm. I do think we need to create more. Actually, that's one of my five-year plan endeavors. Um, and I hope it's more like of a one-year plan endeavor. I, I just had a meeting with a lovely patient advocate that I that would I would love to pair up with to really start to create a platform mm-hmm. that has videos in Spanish that interviews doctors, but, but the, with, a, you know, a voiceover or, or, you know, a translation it for Spanish speakers, uh, because we really don't have that. We really don't have that. Um, mm-hmm. I do, I do know that there is a, a very nice webpage out there. Um, now don't quote me on the name, um, <laughs> of, uh, from Spain that has tried to do this and I have looked okay. at it and I have loved it. So mm. I know there is a Spain resource out there, but, Unfortunately, I mean, as what well, as much as we want to say we're you know we're all Spanish, we're all the same. It's it's really you know we need to create things for our own country, for our own patients, for for Latin and, and that are applicable for Latin America, right? Because these are mm-hmm. immigrants from Latin America or or first generation U.S. born patients as well. So I think on on this side of the world, we we really need to start engaging in these type of education platforms. And I think the more foundations that back this, the better we are. Right, right. I would put myself in that category as well. I would love to be able to translate all of the information like from this show into Spanish. But of course, there's always barriers. There's always that funding barrier that's there, unfortunately. Yes. But I will I will find the resources that you are talking about and I will absolutely put them in the show notes to make them available. And then we will hopefully be able to create more things. Um, sounds like you have some great plans. So uh, we'll be sure to keep keep watching for that. Thank you.
we just met. We just met today to record uh, this podcast. I actually didn't know you were born in Colombia, but I saw on your Twitter, as I was going through your Twitter, you were recently, you're recently back in Colombia. What uh, type of things do you recommend for vacation or to uh, get a great flavor of the country? What do you like to do when you go? Oh, <laughs> well, um, I would recommend going to Cartagena. Yeah. Uh, I love Cartagena. Um, beautiful, beautiful city with tons of culture and you get a taste of the Caribbean Colombian flavor, which is which is very different from the rest of the country, I, I okay. should add, but it's very fun. And 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 I absolutely would recommend going there. Medellin is another place I actually just came back from. And uh and it's a really cool city with with tons of activities to do. And they also have um really explored lately like ecotourism, a little bit kind of like Costa yeah. Rica, right? But um, now, now available in, in Colombia too. So, I, uh, you know, country Colombia is a beautiful mm-hmm. country. I mean, there's so much diversity in the regions and and in what you can do. Um, and I I would encourage anybody that wants to go to also try to go to a, what we call fincas. Fincas are these farms that. Um, many Colombians own and they go to on the weekends uh, primarily and they're like little escape villas and and they're amazing and if you can have a friend that's Colombian who has a finca please by all means go over (laughs) Um, uh, that is that is actually my favorite part of going to Colombia before besides trying all the amazing food that I love um, from my country but uh, one of the things that I think it's funny that I, you know, I mentioned even fincas now because one of the things that I, when I was in this conference in Colombia, they asked me, well, what can, you know, I tell I tell the Colombian doctors, well, the incidence is increasing. We actually published a paper on this with with um, a Colombian mm-hmm. doctor in Medellin, um, Dr. Fabian Juliao Baños, and um, we published uh, that the incidence of IBD of ulcerative colitis in particular is increasing in mm-hmm. Colombia. And so when doctors ask me, well, what can we do, you know, to tell our patients to prevent IBD in their, in their kids? I tell them, well, tell them to go to the fincas more, you know, um, to, to tell them to eat more of the native food and, and not so much the processed American food that comes mm-hmm. over. So um, these are things that, that Colombians can do. And I think any, any Latin American country or developing country, right, go back to their roots and... And that's what I love about Colombia. I mean, everybody's, I highly encourage anyone to go. I think it's a very fun mm-hmm. place. Yeah. Well, the photos that you, uh, that were shared on, on Twitter looked amazing. You all were there for a conference, but it looked <laughs> like you had some fun too. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's Colombia. That's another important part. I have to tell you. <laughs> We throw a good conference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, let's see. Maybe I'll have to try to get that on my list one of these years. Maybe I'll get Ooh, you away. That would be time. amazing. <laughs> well, you know, Dr. Thomas, I'm so excited for all the work that you've already done, that you're going to do. This is so needed, obviously, in the community. And for sure, I am going to keep watching. I want those recipes. <laughs> and I just want to thank you for everything that you're doing for the IBD community. It's so needed. And it was really my pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for having me here. For me, it's a pleasure to talk about this. And I feel very passionate and very strongly about, about this topic. And I'm, I'm always wanting to come back and talk about it more. Thank you. Hey, super listener. 
Thanks to Dr. Thomas for finding the time to talk to me about her research. The outcomes will help all of us who live with these diseases and will hopefully give some direction on how we can try to prevent IBD in future generations. When you are feeling alone in your disease journey, remember that passionate physician scientists like Dr. Damas are working every day to understand IBD and make life better for all of us. And what's more, they're making progress. As always, links to a written transcript, everyone's social media handles, and more information on the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on my episode 144 page on aboutibd.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. About IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. 